Hey, Dan, should I be advising clients to invest in super ultra tactical funds? Only if you love losing money to incredibly high fees. Welcome to Fees Fast, where we talk about money grips, masquerading as investment products. I'm Jessica, and for the record, I am in the VTSAX and Chill Camp. Uh, I'm Dan, and if the intro wasn't clear, I would never advise anyone to use those types of funds. <laughs> okay, so for everyone listening, what is a super ultra tactical fund? So first, it's important to say that if it wasn't obvious, super ultra tactical fund is not a technical or official term. What we're describing here are mutual funds or other investment products that essentially have an incredibly niche approach to investing designed on one of a few specious premises that are ultimately promising to over deliver in any investment environment, despite a complete lack of evidence that any of these funds can do so at all. And even if they have done so, that they can continue to do so. Are we talking about like hedge funds and that sort of thing? Uh, yes and no, because we definitely could just say hedge funds. I think hedge funds deserve probably their own episode, so I'm actually going to leave them out of this. Uh, but hedge funds are a good foundational concept. Essentially, these are like normal mutual funds or unit investment trusts that are developed with a hedge fund-like investment philosophy, but that are being marketed to the general public. Or more specifically, they're being marketed to investment advisors who in turn are putting their clients' money into these products. Okay, so, but don't investment advisors have a fiduciary obligation to their clients? Surely they're doing their homework, and if they genuinely think that these types of products are in their best interest, what's what's the big deal? Uh, I love your tone of voice in asking this question, because you know, <laughs> as well as I know. I think the back half of it is true. I think they genuinely think these types of products are in their client's best interest. I sincerely doubt the first half that they have a fiduciary obligation to their clients and that they're doing their homework in that interest. Okay, so that's like a third and a third and a third. Two thirds aren't true. All right. Uh, so let's start with one. Uh, <laughs> you don't think that they're doing their homework, maybe? Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. So let me describe an example of a common and I'll even say low harm version of a super ultra tactical fund. Uh, a common version of this type of product is a factor tilt fund. A factor tilt fund invests in a broad index, something like the S&P 500. However, the fund omits investments in the index that don't meet a certain criteria, such as being heavily overcapitalized, or it omits all the investments that don't meet a criteria to be called a value stock, or that otherwise somehow tweaks the existing broad market index. Uh, the result of something like this would be a fund with a description like the U.S. large cap core equity fund, or the U.S. small cap value factor fund, something like that. Ah, gotcha. So it's just really investing with a theme. I don't think I see the problem here. Well, and I actually almost agree, but there are a couple of points that need to be called out. First of all, these funds will charge fees that are several multiples of their passive index fund cousins. Uh, they might not be actually high fee. It might be something like 0.2% instead of 0.03% for an S&P 500 index fund. So the objective cost is not hugely different, but the relative cost is pretty significant. I think the second thing is a factor tilt fund relies on two assumptions. A history of that tilt having been significant in driving outperformance compared to the underlying index, and number two, a completely unfounded assumption that it will continue to do so. 
Yeah, there's a classic disclaimer you'll see on everywhere on every investment products disclosure box, and it usually goes something like, historic performance is not an indicator of future returns. It sounds like that buying a factor tilt fund, you're making that classic investment mistake of chasing performance. A factor like, I don't know, a tilt to small companies has done really well in the past several years, but assuming that a factor has done well in the past and that it will continue to do so in the future, ignores a foundational investment concept. And that's that periods of outperformance will typically be followed by periods of underperformance, bringing that current rate of return back to the long-term average. Exactly. And if someone is building an entire portfolio with a single factor tilt in mind, they're making an enormous bet that the factor continues to perform into the future, which is frankly insanely risky. And here's the thing. On its face, I don't have any issue with a factor-tilted mutual fund or ETF product existing. I think the marketplace for investments is better when there is a wide variety of low-cost investment products to meet the demand for products featuring a certain style or basket of investments. What I really have an issue with is how these types of funds in particular are marketed. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. So what's the problem with the marketing? So one particular example is uh, of this is a fund company that doesn't offer any products other than factor tilt funds. The first time I ever heard of them, I was going to be on a panel with some other professionals for a local chamber of commerce. Uh, I hadn't met these folks, so I Googled them and their businesses, and one of them was an investment advisor. And the website essentially had four pages, a homepage, an about the advisor page, a page entirely dedicated to this one specific mutual fund company, and a client login page. And in reading the entire website, almost 70% of, the, of this investment advisor's website was dedicated to information, not about them and their service or who they worked with, but just the investment philosophy behind factor tilting and this fund company in particular. I'll bet I can guess what this company is. And oh God, we're going to get so much hate mail for this one. I'll bet you can. And I'll bet every single investment professional listening to this knows what this company is. So go ahead, spill the beans. Is it dimensional? Yes, it is Dimensional Fund Advisors, also known as DFA. Uh, now, DFA has made some strong products and delivered some great returns for their clients in the past. And back to my general feeling that the products themselves are not the problem per se. No, the issue with DFA is how their products have been marketed. And they're not alone in this. They're just a, a really good example of this. So DFA has historically required financial advisors and investment managers to take a day-long training before they are authorized to use their mutual funds. Now, if you're not an investment professional, let me explain. No other fund company does that, or no other fund company that I know of does that. Not a single one I can think of or name. But this class is supposedly to educate advisors on how the products work, the investment philosophy, and why it's going to be good for their clients. I get the sense that you don't think that's all that's going on, Dan. I sure don't. Uh, because people who go through this training have historically and often come out of it calling themselves DFA advisors and using their new license, I use that term loosely, uh, to sell DFA products as a marketing differentiator. So it's not uncommon to see things like, as a DFA advisor, we have a unique access to products that have historically outperformed by a significant amount on a DFA-obsessed financial advisor's website. Yet 
Despite the requirement that financial advisors go through DFA indoctrination to use their funds, DFA has also been going around those advisors themselves for years. Uh, While DFA billed themselves as being uniquely available only through the best advisors who'd gone through their training, their funds have been available inside of 401k plans and retirement plans and annuity products for years, directly available straight to the public and even to financial advisors who haven't done their training. So while DFA funds have performed both well and poorly case by case over the years, they have been trying to convince financial advisors and by extension their clients that they had unique access to a super secret investment product that would beat the market by enough to warrant paying extra fees for what was otherwise just a factor tilted index fund like any other. Gotcha. I'm going to be honest, Dan, DFA doesn't bother me all that much, you know, other than like the cool kids club that that kind of vibe that it sends out. But I equate what they're doing really as charging for hope, right? Hope that you'll be able to beat the market. Uh, As long as that's not too expensive, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, honestly. But Dan, isn't ultra tactical fund really just factor tilting funds? Nope. Of course. (laughs) Next up, we have the Risk Managed or Volatility Managed Fund. Uh, These are products that, at their basic level, will claim to capture most, if not all, of the upside for an investment portfolio while simultaneously not being exposed to the downside, essentially selling a free lunch. Uh, Last I heard, there are no free lunches. Uh, Correct. There are no free lunches. The way these products are designed vary significantly, and that's actually quite telling because, as one might expect, capturing upside involves investing in underlying assets and assuming their risks, and avoiding downsides involves not investing in the underlying assets and assuming their risks. Or, said differently, you're going to have to introduce things like options into your product in order to either capture upside without owning the assets directly or to shield yourself against the downside to avoid losing money during a downturn. And in turn, by doing so, you're going to have higher costs for the use of these options or for the use of these products, which in turn will drag on the upside and so on. Jess, do you want to read this excerpt from such a fund's objectives description? The fund, quote unquote, actively allocates the assets across fixed income and alternative investments that demonstrate low volatility and favorable risk-adjusted returns. The fund's investments in alternative underlying funds generally provide exposure to assets that are not designed to closely track or correlate to the performance of the general equity and or fixed income markets. So reading that description, can you describe for me in plain English what you think that fund is invested in? All right. Uh, Let's see. Uh, What's not stocks or bonds? Uh, IDK, I don't know, real estate? Maybe. Uh, that seems reasonable, uh, perfectly reasonable. Real estate has some things in common with stocks and bonds, but you know, arguably is perhaps a little less correlated uh, than pure stocks and bonds. Now, can you read the list of investment holdings? Just the names. You don't need to read all the technical details here, but can you read the investment holdings and describe the proportional ratio of how much is invested in one asset class and how much is invested in another? All right. Ooh, okay. We've got some stuff here. Uh, so it looks like the largest holding in here is Nuveen's High Yield Municipal Bond Fund at $10 million or uh, And then the next two, three highest are American High Income Municipal Bond Fund. What? And then Franklin High Yield Tax-Free Income Fund and TCW Emerging Markets Income Fund. I don't know. So it seems like half, almost half of the fund is this one high yield bond fund, and then more than half of it's in other high yield bond funds, and then another chunk is emerging markets. Ew. 
And then the other half of the fund is in what? Oh, geez, I didn't even see that second part here. Oh, God, that's uh, it's a treasury obligations fund. Holy shit. Okay, it's basically a money market fund. Yep, so we have a fund being billed as being completely diversified away from traditional fixed income and equities that is invested almost entirely in fixed income, and then the other half is just cash, essentially. Um, yeah, not not exactly a managed volatility product so much as just a weirdly constructed fixed income fund. Now, for our audience, the underlying mutual funds and money market funds here have a weighted average expense ratio of 0.38%. Jess, how much do you think this fund is charging to offer this allocation of essentially half municipal bond funds and emerging market funds and half money market funds? I don't know, maybe like 25 bips or so uh, 0.25%. Okay, so so all in maybe half a half a percent, a little over half a percent oh, yeah, on maybe. top of the underlying probably, yeah, costs. Probably half, yeah. All right, well, drum roll, please. Uh, the answer to the question is one point nine five percent. So, Oof. if you just copy pasted this portfolio on your own, it would cost you zero point three eight percent a year. If you hired a normal AUM financial advisor and told them to manage this for you at market rates, your cost might be anywhere from 0.38% of the underlying funds plus a fixed fee up to maybe 1.38%. Uh, but if you have a normal financial advisor charging AUM fees who has been marketed to and convinced to buy this fund for you, you're probably paying close to 3% all in just to hold this fund, since uh, which since its inception has returned an annual average of 1.59% net of its one95 percent cost. So if we want to carve another 1% off of that, it's made probably half a percent annually since inception if an advisor is buying it for you. Jeez. Okay. Well, uh, those are fees that I would lose sleep over for sure. Jeez, uh, what a weird ass mix of funds. <laughs> Munis, high yield bonds and emerging markets. It's giving me whiplash. Well, and back to the marketing. Uh, this particular company specializes in being cool. Uh, so they produce a podcast for financial advisors. They use high fees to pay wholesalers to aggressively market uh, and have done a pretty good job on social media of creating a brand and a presence. So if you're not particularly stringent about being a fiduciary for your clients, you feel like it's more of a technicality than an obligation, and you're easily pulled in by shiny objects or a good story without doing much due diligence on your own, it's not impossible to believe that even investment professionals big air quotes, by the way, guys, uh, could be pulled into this. And the marketing is showing results. This fund company's brought in almost a billion dollars in new assets in just the past few years. Double wolf. I get what you're saying now that advisors pitching these funds maybe aren't doing their homework. <laughs> Even just a little digging would bring up the dirt here. Uh, I have a slightly relevant story uh, with one of these super tactical funds, though. It's a bit different. Uh, an old firm, we used a fund that was supposed to bring non-correlated returns in a down market. And on paper, it totally worked. I remember going through market volatility. I think it was Brexit at the time, but uh, the fund was up like 2 to 3% pretty consistently uh, when the whole rest of the market was down. And I remember being like really surprised. So I was like, wow, this is totally good uh, in comparison to a lot of these funds that are normally pitched as bringing these non-correlated returns, uh, usually just don't deliver on it, right? Um, yeah. So it turns out it was because the fund manager was falsifying performance. He actually was sentenced to 15 years in prison for it. And uh, yeah, the fund was Infinity Q if you ever want to look it up. Uh, yeah. Uh, just a little fraud will do wonders for your performance numbers. <laughs> Finally, there is just the outsourcing option. 
Wait, uh, how is outsourcing a bad option? Honestly, as a financial planner, even I can see the appeal of saying, you know what, I'm too small of a firm, too busy, or just plain uncomfortable with managing my client's money. Outsourcing seems like a really great solution here. Well, once again, I don't actually disagree with it in concept, but we're talking about the super tactical version of this. So for our listeners, there are a range of products that go by different names, but essentially offer variations on the same thing. There are TAMPs, or turnkey asset management platforms, SMAs, separately managed accounts, and UMAs, or universal managed accounts, which are just big investment accounts with multiple SMAs inside of them. Now, a TAMP is essentially a fully outsourced investment offering. So they'll do everything from investment management, to billing and reporting, uh, to even some client service functions. Clients, in turn, will pay an additional fee, often around 0.3%. That seems to be sort of the market rate for these types of products, Uh, though it can vary by provider and account size on top of any other fees the advisor charges uh, and the underlying products charge as part of their cost structure. In the case of an SMA, you're essentially buying the investment management part of a TAMP specifically for your client. Uh, One could argue that you're essentially just buying an overly hyped, actively managed mutual fund, but SMAs will often dabble in individual stock and bond holdings or private equity rather than using as many investment products. So they'll actually buy the direct holdings instead of being a bunch of ETFs or something like that. Uh, These are often marketed as a good solution for niche investment areas like emerging markets. Uh, But again, the costs can be really substantial all the way up to an excess of 1%. And again, on top of the other costs, the advisors or the products being used in the SMAs charge. And a UMA, as mentioned, is just a bundle of SMA. So rather than putting 40% in a large cap fund and 30% in an international fund and so on, you might just see those allocating 40% to a large cap SMA and 30% to an international SMA and so on. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, I actually have an SMA that I use in my firm, but it's in pretty limited circumstances. They can be a nice option, assume, again, assuming they aren't too expensive, right? I think the most common one that I've had in my years uh, being a financial planner was for municipal municipal bond portfolios. Uh, municipal bonds are, are great if you've got big bucks and need some income. Uh, they provide tax-free income, so it's it's a pretty good type of a portfolio to be invested in. The downside, uh, at least from a financial advisor's perspective, is picking the bonds themselves, right? The ability for a municipality to pay back their bond and not go into default is pretty niche knowledge. I can guess that maybe a Puerto Rico bond is at high risk for default, right? But how the fuck should I know if, I don't know, Braddock, Pennsylvania can pony up on their bond? So basically, (laughs) you pay 25 bips or 0.25% to some nerd who just likes reading town hall minutes from all over the country. And in turn, you get a nice tax-efficient portfolio. And you know, again, at a basic level, I have no issue with these products because niche knowledge of Braddock, Pennsylvania is a heck of a niche. Um, you know, really, other than perhaps just how expensive they can be, um, you know, the, the promise is there, the costs are there. Uh, and once again, it really is just how they're used that becomes a sticking point. So just as you described, right, if, if I'm a small financial planning firm and I have no investment management experience, I think suggesting a use of a TAMP for clients or even something just like a recommended robo-advisor platform for clients can be a good solution for my lack of capacity or experience in managing investments. Yeah, so I shouldn't be doing this for you, so here's a good solution for you. Exactly. However, even to this day, a ton of investment managers and financial planning firms, particularly those with a strong investment focus, background, or a fee model based on percentage of assets under management, will divert 100% of a client's investable assets into these products and services. 
having been completely outsourced investment management, reporting everything, their service model really becomes important, right? The promise of this type of outsourcing would be that if the investment firm or the service is just going to do a much better job than the planner could, it's worth it. And if they're doing what I just described above, you know, outsourcing for the client's benefit, then they probably can focus all of their time on financial planning services like tax and estate planning. I don't love it, but at least they're delivering. However, for an investment-focused firm, what this really means is that the client is paying a substantial fee for the firm to pick a vendor for them, and then paying the vendor and the firm high fees for the firm to then just spend all of its time on client acquisition and the occasional client service meeting. I really hate to make statements of opinion about the combination of, of fee models and service models, but I would argue it's outright unethical to build a business model in which you make all of your money by charging people based on something you literally don't do for them, such as charging AUM fees when you don't manage money. This honestly surprises me. Is it really all that common? I used to see it a lot in the broker-dealer world, and frankly, there are even some really good advisors and financial planners out there who work under firms where the only fee model for financial advice is assets under management billing. And so in the interest of being able to focus on clients, they simply accept it as a necessary evil or just the way that the business works for them. At one point, uh, just as I was leaving the broker-dealer world, I even saw the firm I was with offering to pay back a percentage of SMA fees and TAMP fees to advisors who used them enough. Because from the company's perspective, advisors trying to manage portfolios was a waste of time when they could be focusing on business development. I think for a member of the general public, a fair thing to really dig into if a firm is going to manage investments for you is to ask, who is actually managing this portfolio? What are the actual costs of having you manage this portfolio versus you outsourcing it? And what is the actual benefit to me individually of having to pay additional costs for you to outsource this? And if it's something super specific like municipal bond funds in Braddock, Pennsylvania, you know, that that's going to be a pretty good case. Like, look, nobody knows about this stuff except for like two people on earth. And if we want to invest in it, we, we're going to have to pay for them. But if it's just, eh, I'm not a very good investment manager, or we just, like, we just don't like being on hands-on, but we're going to charge you for it anyway, that's, that's sort of a crummy combination. And I think if a client is going to give their life savings to invest, and you're charging them to do so, there's a genuine ethical question of whether the cost of the client of outsourcing on top of what you charge them to do so really is going to be in the client's best interest. Yeah. I mean, I always recommend that you ask any financial planner or advisor that you're thinking about hiring, both how they get paid and what they're going to do for you specifically. Only you can decide if it's worth it, but it's so important to understand both of these things. I think the song goes, baby, I'm worth it. And we just have to accept that sometimes. (laughs) Yes. Baby, I'm worth it. Okay, go ahead. All of this to say, there is no investment product or service providers that is intrinsically bad, right? Every product we've discussed today has a use case, has a purpose, has a function, and has, you know, every every type and version has made money for their clients in the past. So it's not to say that they're just bad, right? Every investment has an opportunity or possibility of making money. Every firm might have a unique idea that turns them into the next big short story, Uh, Every investment advisor has a fiduciary obligation to their clients. And if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, they genuinely believe that whatever they're recommending to their clients, that it is in their clients' best interests. Yet one can't help but look at an overwhelming amount of data that tells a singular story. While many funds and products and service providers have periods of outperformance that provide excess value above and beyond what the market provides, in the long term, almost no investment product, thesis, or idea succeeds in outperforming its underlying benchmark index. Every decision to invest away from the benchmark for an asset class relies on the assumption that for now and in the immediate future, 
this particular fund is going to beat its benchmark and is going to be worth the extra costs incurred for using it. That decision is almost always going to be the byproduct, not of deep investment research, but ultimately by believing the marketing or the story being told by the product's provider. Well, if you generally think you or a product you like can beat the market, try ultra tactical funds. Best case, you beat the market. Middle case, you do a victory dance after 10 years of underperforming and paying high fees. Or worst case, your fund manager goes to federal pound me in the ass prison. Fleece Vests is produced by Daniel Yerker and Jessica Gettle. Daniel Yerger is an investment advisor representative of My Wealth Planners, a registered investment advisor in Colorado, and Jessica Gettle is an investment advisor representative of Pavilion Financial Planning, a registered investment advisor in Pennsylvania. Our theme song is Dr. Yes by Yari. Nothing discussed in this podcast is investment advice or any other form of advice, and the podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. If you make investments or other financial decisions because of the podcast, frankly, you weren't listening.